Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 24, Polyrhythmic History. Well, welcome back to History Against the Grain for episode 24. And how are you doing, Chris? Uh, I'm, I'm doing well. It's, uh, you know, the middle of the week here in uh, late September, I believe. Uh, the calendar has nearly lost any meaning. Uh, <laughs> but, but I checked today. Uh, and I know we're close to a presidential election, Josh. Oh, God. I actually said to my students the other day, uh, like we were, I was talking about something coming up, and I, I said, I hate thinking about the, you know, what's happening in a week or two weeks. And I realized because every week that goes by gets us close to the election, and every step close to the election is like terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am just at the point where like, I literally am just looking at a space an inch in front of my toes. That's as far forward as I want to look at any given moment because it's too grim. Yeah. You know, the episode today, uh, is going to have a lot to say, I think about why ultimately I shouldn't have any faith that this election is going to matter. Uh, in other words, it's that old idea that the system is working exactly the way it was designed and it's not really designed to create the kind of uh, fundamental change that we know we need in order to save ourselves from, you know, what they call the sixth extinction. But there I was last night, nevertheless, tuning in, albeit rather briefly, uh, to the, uh, the the television broadcast of, of the debate. Uh, and I don't know uh, how to account for that, actually, Josh, other than, you know, some strange, mor- morbid, curiosity about you know how how bad can things get you know yeah you're i, I said earlier you're you're like a dare, daredevil you, you go around with your phone you know the battery's at like four percent you're watching presidential debates i wish i had your courage we uh my, my middle son was trying to like watch it on his phone and it, <laughs> me and my my older son were like get out of the room we don't want to hear anything move away put your headphones in i can hear voices i don't want to hear uh yeah i i, I compared it to like going on Twitter or something like that. If you go on, when you go on Twitter, you're almost certainly going to feel worse about yourself by the time you <laughs> shut it down. You're, and you're almost certainly not going to feel better about yourself. And so at a certain point, it's okay for us to make decisions where this is not going to serve any beneficial purpose. Although it's nice that you did it because it gives us podcast material. So thank you for, for taking one for the team there. Yeah, I'm happy to do it. And I, I think it is a kind of fatalism or maybe, you know, live for the moment because I don't even have a to-go bag. You know, they keep telling us you should yeah. living here in California with the myriad, you know, um, potentially, you know, devastating uh, advances that are going on from, you know, wildfires to pandemics to a variety of things that uh, you should keep a to-go bag. I don't know, under your bed or in your closet or something. I don't even have one yeah. of those. Uh, so I must be thinking I'm not meant to survive the apocalypse. <laughs> Oh boy, good good start here. <laughs> this this broadcast will be my you know my my last uh, and final 
not not necessarily this particular episode, but but history against the grain, as many as we can you know uh, produce, will have to be uh, you know my last word for it, um, because you yeah. know once the zombies start coming down Stevens Creek Boulevard, yeah, that's that's all she wrote, baby. Well, the good news is I just made a deal with uh, Elon Musk that this this podcast is going to be launching a space on the next uh, whatever his spaceship is. So we're going to the stars, baby. So history against a grain tucked into the glove compartment of a uh, Tesla somewhere in the outer solar system. Yeah, with Fleetwood Max rumors or something like that, I think. <laughs> that sounds great. Well, listen, um, we have a lot f- for our audience today, don't we? We have a fantastic interview coming up. Yeah, I had a blast talking to uh, Pernilla, and I'll introduce that in a bit, but let's talk about something a little bit bigger now, bigger than the impending apocalypse, mm-hmm. I guess. And that's the way we, we kind of think about periodization in history and, and some of the problems with periodization. Let's talk about the early modern world. Yeah, that sounds great because, you know, the, the book that Pernilla wrote and the one that you guys are going to discuss in the interview coming up uh, situates itself in what typically, uh, you know, Western historians call the early modern era. Now, uh, we should put out a disclaimer, Josh. This is maybe only for what history geeks only or something. In other words, wait, you're going to hear two full-grown men get really animated about something called periodization today. <laughs> and that's opposed to our normal episodes, which are, have a, a deep appeal to the, right. the general populace, right? <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, advance notice on that. But, yeah, the early modern period. And, and, and listen, I think we both have come to agree that it's part of what's wrong with the Western uh, civilization history narrative. In other words, it, it was a it was a periodization analytical construct to enclose a, a few centuries. Let's say roughly from you know Columbus to oh the French Revolution or so. So from the late 1400s, basically to the early 1800s. Uh, that's a pretty good chunk of time. Uh, but yet it is, in my mind at least, reduced in that Western tradition, it's created, it's invented by that Western tradition. I'll, I'll let you speak to the rest of the world here in a second. But as an early modern, which suggests that it really is setting up, therefore, what? The modern era. But you can't quite get away from the feeling that it all represents some triumphal march of something headed to a great kind of crescendo moment presumably what the one we're living in now mm-hmm. it could be better right <laughs> and, and i'm going to trust our audience to understand the irony of that right because if we'd done this a year ago um, you know admittedly we're still in the trump era a year ago so it might have been a hard sell but but it might not have been such a hard sell at earlier you know times maybe the eisenhower generation or something or the kennedy right. generation you know to think that we were reaching some kind of crescendo moment now called the modern era but that's not exactly the direction we're going to take it today is it no not not really and um you know i think part of the part of the challenge of this is is that 
you know, when you have these kind of transitional periods or the, the, the naming is kind of transitional, then they exist only so you can get to that next part. And I, I think, you know, one of the things that we want to talk about here is that what we call the early modern world is fascinating in its own right and is significant in its own right, not only because it leads to this thing we call modernity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and unfortunately, it gets uh, telescoped or, or condensed in the telling of the U.S. national narrative, because remember, the whole purpose of the U.S. national history narrative was to get to that national birth that we talked about last time in the 19th century, the 1800s. So, you know, basically everything before that, or at least, you know, at least up to the American Revolution in 1776. And, in, and keep in mind, we're talking about a good 200 years of history. So it's not a long weekend, you know, it's, it's a substantial period of time. And yet it gets condensed merely as prelude to this other more climactic, you know, moment called the birth of the nation. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm going to suggest, and I know you are too, that if we want to understand ourselves, we got to get over that rubric, you know, of somehow living in a crescendo time, uh, because we, we might well be living in the decline and fall. That is the, yeah. the really instrumental period, the really foundational formative stuff, I think was going on uh, exactly during that period we call the, uh, the early modern period. Yeah, and I, you know, the, 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 there is problems with, with a concept given that it is you know, created in one part of the world by certain people to, to describe you know, this period that runs up to, as I was just saying, the period we're supposed to really care about the modern world. But I think a, a lot of historians have done good work in kind of reclaiming the idea and, and globalizing it and trying to make sense of it as not something that just is imposed from this European perspective, but something that existed in different parts of the world. Um, Sanjay Subramanian from UCLA, uh, he was actually uh, our previous guest, Alina Anushar, yeah, was his, uh, his advisor, I believe. Mm -hmm when he was doing his work at UCLA, mm -hmm. he's done incredible work in kind of freeing the early modern from this stranglehold of, uh, stranglehold of Europe and European intellectual history and turning it into something that's that's kind of broader and more global and less centered on on Europe. And so um, he talks about the idea of, of modernity emerging separate from and sometimes before the arrival of Europea European uh, activities in both the old world and the new world, that nascent modernity, in other words, was there even as Europeans were arriving in these places for the first time. And he also speaks a lot to the importance of, of seeing this, this early modern world um, as, as he says, a porous network of regions and local communities rather than as a patchwork of well-defined states. And I think that idea there that this is a, uh, the early modern world is a porous network of regions and local communities rather than a patchwork of well-defined states um, is so important because one of the big problems, I think, with, with traditional uses of early modern is the way that it takes this national narrative and then imposes it on the past. So we still have to talk about, you know, these nations and how they operated back then, when the reality was it's, it's generally far more complex, um, as I'm going to talk about in uh, the interview, as we're going to talk about in the interview to come, for instance, you know, some of these French colonies in, uh, you know, across the Atlantic, you know, they were French colonies, but if, if push came to shove, they would gladly ditch the French and join up with the British. They didn't really care so much who they were part of. Uh, they just wanted to have the things they needed. They wanted, you know, building materials and food and access to, to slave labor and these sorts of things. And if the British could provide it, that's fine. The French could keep doing it. They could stay with the French. But the nation doesn't really explain that kind of stuff as, as we sometimes think it should. I agree. And it's why when you get to the national period and you start seeing those national histories, they have to artfully ignore all kinds of evidence uh, in order to make this kind of seamless transition happen 
you know, from what they slightly condescendingly call the early modern era into the modern era. And we're going we're gonna to consider some of the ways that happens. But, you know, and I also want to throw in one other point that I know you, you appreciate is that when we, we do this sort of Western periodization, that is when we, we identify a particular period of time, give it a name and say that this is what it signifies. In this case, early modern, we kind of leave a lot of other really important places of the world in the lurch, you know, whether it be China or India or what have you, because then due to the fact that the definition is so predicated on European type developments heading into the modern era, it's it's therefore ultimately very easy for, for Western historians to say, well, gee, China, sorry, you didn't you didn't make the grade. You didn't follow us into modernity or sorry, India. Mm -hmm. And and that becomes then a, a kind of rationale for how these so-called modern nations will then begin to treat other areas of the world. Would you would you agree? Yeah, it's that's a really good point. And I think one of the more fascinating things that's, that's started to come about in the last couple decades and kind of thinking about modernity itself, and this kind of gets back to what you're saying, is that, you know, so Subramanian is saying that the early modern exists around the world. It's global. It exists, apps, you know, um, sorry, apart from European presences in all these places. But there's, you know, newer arguments in the last, as I said, couple decades. That counts as new in, in history, by the way, two decades mm -hmm. ago. But um, that, that in many ways, what we call the modern world didn't even develop in Europe. It developed in European empires in many ways, that in their their attempts to kind of understand and control these faraway places, many of the concepts that we associate with modernity come to be. Um, and many of those concepts are going to revolve around how we create sets of boundaries between groups and, and ideas and the, these kind of separate uh, you know boxes to put everything into. And we are, of course, a history without borders here on History Against the Grain. And so, you know, that kind of modern... Uh, obsession with with categorization um, really runs against what we're trying mm -hmm. to do, and so I, I think it is important to look back this period, whether we're calling it early modern or whatever we want to call it, because it's a period that when you really study it, you see that that those kind of categories, those kind of boxes, those kinds of idealized or, or essentialized ideas of of what the world was, they're not really there. There is this real flux and this real, as Subramanian said, this, this porousness to what's happening that that is fascinating in its own right whether or not it leads into something else or not just fascinating to, to look at and, and see because it is so different from how things are going to are going to become in later centuries and therefore as you know everything to do with perspective and i happen to think perspective is a useful thing um and we're talking about history here periodization uh, a lot uh, can be done to mold a perspective. You know, the only place in the world where there's anything like a medieval period, uh, a Middle Ages, is where? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Europe. Western, well, I mean, Western Europe, basically, right? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, but but that word that that term is thrown around so so easily. You know, medieval Japan, medieval China. Um, you know, and and just because it happens to uh, you know line up, I guess, temporally with when the medieval was happening in, in Europe. Um, now, I'm sure there's medieval scholars out there who would probably, you know, push back against that. I'm sure I'm not up to date that much with medieval scholarship, but I'm sure there's been updates in, in the way people are thinking about the medieval as well. No, but absolutely. it is it's problematic in its own right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I would say that if you were to compare, you know, say uh, medieval, uh, you know, medieval European town or something from the ninth century, it's not going to look at anything like what we would think of as China, uh, you know, in, in the ninth century. I mean, you, you, you would probably have to, 
stretch that definition, um, given how relatively modern China seemed even in the ninth century, you know? Uh, yeah. So the terms get all mixed up. And we looked at the word modern, you and I. We were kind of um, scrolling through the Oxford English Dictionary, in fact, to try to get our minds around modern. And, and you know, on the one hand, it, it just meant coming out of Latin and then the French modern, you know, put an E on the end. It just meant current or contemporary initially, right? right. You know, in the late 1400s and in, in the 1500s, 1600s. In other words, they, they weren't calling themselves early modern. <laughs> you know, they just, no. they just meant modern as now. But it will come to mean, particularly in the national context of the 19th century, especially, I would think, uh, not just now versus then. That is, modern is now and then is something else. But modern will come to mean something qualitatively advanced or superior mm -hmm. to then, you know, the new and improved definition of modern. So even that's really a, a problem, I think, as we'll see, because uh, much of what we would consider modern is actually created in the early modern age. And we'll leave it up to our audience to decide whether it represented some qualitative improvement. You know, you were asking your students last week, right, about it was was civilization a good thing after all? And they looked at you like yeah. or, you know, like you were crazy or something, right? And you guys are going to talk. Uh, yeah. In fact, in this episode, you're going to talk with uh, Pernilla about the idea of civilization, and and guess what? It's going to be part of this sort of um, you know intellectual progression of ideas by the late 18th century that will come to imply. Uh, something qualitative, you know, a, a kind of triumphal uh, bolster, kind of triumphal narrative. Therefore, m when you put them together, modern civilization, wow, you have just about, you know, the the very apogee of human history, don't you? That can't, can't get better than that, right? <laughs> if, if anything, the contemporary world shows us. Yeah. That we have certainly reached our, our height. So it's a shame, really, in the American national narrative that we don't pay more attention to that early colonial period. Like I say, even pre-colonial period um, from, say, the mid-1500s up through the, well, about 1800. It all gets truncated and, and um, telescoped, as I say. But I put together a list here. And, and feel free, partner, to chime in and, and add to or enhance or, or um, amend as you see fit. But the way I look at it, um, you know, is the early modern period, as we call it, is really represents the basic genetic code, you might say, of the systems that we live in now. Uh, if there has mm -hmm. been some development uh, or, uh, you know, modification or, well, you know, what have you. And, you know, nobody would argue that, for example, in the area of technology, there hasn't been a, you know, a kind of a continual, you know, um, uh, development or innovation or advancement in some basic respect. Uh, so yet, nevertheless, that basic genetic code, here's what it yields when you look at these otherwise rather in the West, that is to say, rather uh, underappreciated uh, period. Here's what I came up with, okay? Um, Transoceanic trade. Uh, mm -hmm. and multi-oceanic trade, actually. So not yeah. just the crossing yeah, yeah. of a single ocean here or there, but, right, we get the first circumnavigations, for example, mm -hmm. of the globe. Um, and, and, and while we're at it on land, multi-continental connections. Mm -hmm. We add the Western Hemisphere in the early modern era, after all, and those uh, right. those continents become connected to a global 
uh, system, as it were. Uh, so we're, you know, we're even adding, in, a, in, the, in the Western tradition, adding uh, new continents and connecting. Uh, what do you think about, how about capitalism? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, this is I, something I focus on so much this semester is just that, you know, this, this patterns of consumption that now cross oceans, right, that allow people to consume things that are produced far away from them is, uh, you know, it's, it's a brand new thing. And it, it, it's not that there hasn't been luxury trade across, across long distances, right. but increasingly kind of everyday goods, Europeans in particular, are consuming sugar in huge, in huge amounts that's being produced far away from them. Um, you know, we're seeing things like cottons produced in one place and being sold, you know, it, it produced in India, for instance, and then sold in, in West Africa. Um, and that's such an important and, and distinct development because what it really means now is that people are so far removed from the process of, of, of production. Um, mm -hmm. They're now consuming stuff that they don't know how it was actually made. Um, yeah, so I always think vital. of the, a proper sort of English, you know, uh, West End English woman, you know, in the 1600s, um, having her proper cup of a tea. You know, think what it took to get that scenario. You know, you first of all, the China. There's a reason they call yeah. it China, right? Um, you have the so the ceramic ware, right? You have the tea itself coming from you know what the, they would have called the Far East, right? You have right. Uh, what you have sugar to sweeten mm -hmm. that cup, you know that it, that is coming from the West Indies, and the labor to uh, create that sugar trade is coming from Africa. So right there in that fashionable uh, West End apartment, you know, the nice bourgeois English uh, tea drinking uh, lady is herself the, the, the kind of connecting point for this, this global system now that's developing. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And I mean, you could do similar things with, with different parts of the world and different, uh, different products being consumed, but it's, it's something we haven't really seen at that scale before. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, that's absolutely important. Absolutely. And, and you know, what, what historians call the market nexus, you know, that, that these, I mean, Adam Smith is going to write the wealth of nations in 1776. And that's often seen as sort of this formula of, of what, you know, modern capitalism is, but, but it's already happening two centuries earlier. That's our point. In other mm -hmm. words, this idea of supply and demand and commodification and trade across great distance, division of labor, division of production, all that kind of stuff. It's happening in the early modern era. And one of the byproducts of it is um, a new kind of unfreedom. Uh, un mm -hmm. Unfreedom, as we call it, was not new in the early modern age, but the sorts of unfreedom uh, was. So obviously chattel slavery, which becomes now part of a commodities trade across a hemisphere, as we know. But even indentured servitude, you know, I was just reading it. Americans uh, sometimes talk about how they were indentured servants. And, and yet the indentured servitude that develops in the Western Hemisphere uh, in the English colonies is rather different than in England. The terms are longer. The terms of servitude are longer. And the um, basic uh, sort of commodity definition now of the labor of an indentured servant is something that was purchased and owned in a legal sense for a longer period of time, anywhere from five to seven years, and was seen as a kind of marketplace for labor. And, and so that was rather different than the way a, you know, labor, even servitude existed in England before. Yeah, and I was actually just talking about this with my class today. 
that in many ways that unfreedom that, that becomes so prominent in this early modern world, particularly in that early modern Atlantic world, is such a huge influence on the way people began to, uh, to understand freedom, right? That in many ways, these quote unquote modern ideas of freedom cannot exist without these early modern ideas of, of unfreedom that are emerging. So there's this, um, you know, kind of symbiotic relationship between those two things. There really is. And it's so well illustrated in the U.S. narrative because those who are seen often as the architects of freedom, as you say, are themselves slave owners, you know, most famously Thomas mm -hmm. Jefferson. And that's not a coincidence because really, as I think you're suggesting, the very concept of freedom as it evolves, as we understand, is itself a product of this early modern age. And it comes in kind of contradistinction to slavery, therefore, um, instead of, of, you know, of, of seeing, well, let's put it this way. S slavery is, is the denial of freedom, freedom obviously, but, but freedom itself is then defined in relationship to slavery. So property itself becomes a hallmark of what it means to be free. And I usually talk about that, you know, in the case of the American Revolution, for example, because there really is a spectrum. You know, when, when people get, a, you know, riled up in presidential debates and start talking about freedom and, and, and NRA freedom and, you know, everybody, mm -hmm. freedom, you know, I'm tempted to do, you know, Chris Christopherson, freedom's just another word for nothing <laughs> left to lose or yeah. something. But, but seriously, there's an assumption that it's this kind of universal, but it wasn't. It, since it was it was defined in response to enslavement, it meant that really those who were deemed to be free in the fullest political and legal sense were those who owned property, including those who owned enslaved laborers. And that's why you get so many of these characters coming out of American slavery, like Jefferson, like Washington, like Madison, you know, many of those we call framers who are defining freedom in part as the freedom to own other human beings. Right. Yeah, um, that just made me think of this, this other example of kind of a similar sort of thing is that when, when the Dutch begin their their uh, attempt to break free of the Spanish monarchy in the you know 16th, late 16th and into the 17th century, one of the ways they often express their position within the, 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 the Spanish empire is they um, is through the use of, of Indians, right? Mm -hmm. that, so the indigenous people in the Americas, mm -hmm. they compare themselves to the Indians, um, and that's how they can kind of get across that, that that is why they need their freedom from from Spain. So even their own conception of their position is heavily influenced by the existence of this system of empire in the Americas. So um, great, point. you know, the, the, we just keep seeing uh, you know all these connections yeah. coming up in this early modern world where people are understanding themselves and understanding others, you know, as a result of of all these new relationships, all these new connections, all these new systems that are being born in that period. I really like that. You know, if 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 for our listeners, you know, if you're if you're keeping score here, everything we've mentioned so far, you know, the, the crucible for all these developments is essentially in the imperial world of, of the West Indies, the islands of the West Indies and the mainland of North America, South America, Central America. In other words, that's where these ideas, the sort of the proving ground of this history is is playing out. And, and in your interview with Pernilla, you're going to talk more about uh, the French colonial experience. But uh, yeah, I, I, you know, when, when you get to the revolution, it's, it's very interesting because you're going to have these, these, these uh, among other slave owners, these free white male property owning um, revolutionaries who are accusing England of trying to enslave them. You know, the famous right. line from Samuel Johnson is, how, how is it that we hear the loudest yelps for liberty from the enslavers of men? 
And he was talking about men like Thomas Jefferson, who complained, after all, during the Revolutionary Crisis, that England was trying to reduce them to slavery. And so in other words, those of you who like irony, understand what I'm saying. These were slave-owning uh, patricians who were accusing England of trying to reduce them, the slave-owning patricians, to slavery. And why? Because they raised a few pennies a tax. You know, mm. I mean, the irony is is remarkable here, this idea of taxation being, you know, a, a catalyst for revolution and and seeing uh, in their rhetoric this this fear that they were being reduced to slavery. And, and so it's something I have to work with students a lot on to try to problem solve. And, and it really does come down to this idea of property because you had free men in the colonies who weren't really property owners. You know, they may have owned personal property, but they weren't landowners or business owners. They didn't have capital, in other words. And they really didn't fit the profile of freedom as men like uh, Jefferson uh, would have defined it. They, 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 they had a kind of lesser degree of liberty, if you will. And so the, you know, the, the rubric that's created has gradations of freedom and liberty. And uh, when they get to setting up the political systems, among other things, there's still a property requirement to vote. You know, and so yeah. that idea of liberty that's based on that nexus of the marketplace, of capital, of property owning capital, of slave owning capital is uh, it very much reflects that that sense of hierarchy. And, and though we might like to think that this was somehow the seedbed of democracy, you know, democracy is something that made most of those guys really nervous, wasn't it? <laughs> Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, it, you know, and so we're going to talk about this in the interview a little bit, but you know, we tend to think of the French Revolution as being so much more radical than the American Revolution, but but that same that same discomfort is absolutely there, particularly in the early part of the Revolution. You know, the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen, as Pernilla talks about in her book, the first the first uh, you know part of that is man is born free and, and remains in liberty, and then a few parts down, it's talking about. Uh, how property is sacrosanct. Mm -hmm. And so how are you supposed to read that? You read the first one, you're like, well, we can't have slavery, right? Because obviously slavery goes mm -hmm. against us. But then if you believe people can be property, then the, the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen also seems to be protecting property. And so, um, you know, you're left in this ambiguous state where if you want to, you can make the, the case for abolition. If you don't want to, you can make the case for property. Um, and you get nowhere, basically. Yeah, and I had to laugh last night. That reminds me of something. It's such a good point in the debate where, you know, Trump was trying to defend his economic record, right, and mm -hmm. and pointed to the stock market. Well, you know, I mean, most economists, most reputable economists will say, listen, the stock market is not the economy. The economy is not the stock market. But the stock market was something created in the early modern period to reflect this kind of commodities trade in, in, in property, right? You know, and so mm -hmm. uh, Trump really had to struggle. I, I kind of cracked up last night to, to think of a reason why the stock market should reassure like, you know, uh, working class people in this country, you know, who, who don't yeah. own stocks. And he, and he sort of blurted yeah. out something about 401ks. <laughs> That's about the best <laughs> he could come up with, you know. Um, and I think that itself is a kind of legacy because, you know, Trump is one of these guys who's very much, I think, the product of this system that we're talking about. Uh, that is a system that sees, you know, in capitalist terms, sees wealth as accrued 
through exchange in some kind of marketplace, whether it be a stock marketplace or real estate marketplace or what have you. And um, and the fact that that Trump apparently doesn't uh, also particularly disagree with the idea of slavery um, as he's telling his white supremacist soldiers to stand by, uh, you know, also um, is, it kind of reflects that that sense of disdain, I think, um, that is sewn into both the racial and ethnic and other divisions are created at this time. So, yeah, so all of these issues that we're talking about, my friend, they're all generated like the DNA code of our lives now generated in this earlier generation we call the early modern period. And, and, it, and it's a whole really, you know, a historical uh, hole that we've dug that we're still trying to figure out how to dig our way out of. So I'm, I'm really anxious for the, uh, for the audience to hear uh, your interview. Yeah, let's get into that. And I just want to say before we do that the title of this episode is, is Polyrhythmic History. And that, that term comes from Panilla's book, which I will talk about in a second. And it just, uh, you know, late in her book, she, she has this statement. I'm kind of paraphrasing here. But essentially, if we become aware of the polyrhythmic qualities of history, we can become more attuned to the ways in which historical continuity interlocks with innovation, change, and rupture. To kind of see history not as this history of, you know, rupture, uh, or just continuity, but to understand that there are all these rhythms going on. Some rhythms are, are continuing, some rhythms are stopping. And if we can attune our ears to hearing all that stuff at once, history becomes more complex, but it also becomes uh, uh, you know, more interesting uh, as well. And so let me get into introducing uh, Panilla. So uh, our guest today is Panilla Rue. Panilla is a, a Cambridge trained historian. She got her PhD at Cambridge University in 2010. Uh, her background is in early modern France and kind of early modern uh, empires in general, European empires. And her book, and the, what we're going to spend a lot of time talking about, her first book is called Economies and the Reinvention of Empire, France and the Americas and Africa, uh, circa 1750 to 1802. So we're going to talk a lot about that book because it, it really is a, a fascinating look at a world still in formation, uh, in many ways, in which you're seeing these ideas emerge that, as we've been talking about, ultimately end up having uh, even more importance as we get into the into the modern world uh, of the 19th century. And so we'll we'll spend a lot of time talking about this this her book. We'll talk about uh, this idea of polyrhythmic history, and then towards the end, um, and one of the reasons we had this discussion just now is is she is um, a big part of this initiative at the University of Pittsburgh, which I don't think I mentioned. That's where she teaches. Um, it's called the Early Modern Worlds Initiative, and uh, and so that kind of got us thinking about this early modern world, what it is, how it functions, uh, and she's got some interesting stuff to say about that as well. So without further ado, here is my interview with Panilla Lu, and I uh, hope you enjoy. We're very excited to have with us today, Panila Lua. And we're going to talk about a lot of things, but we want to, I want to focus on her book, which uh, I recently read. It's called The Economist and the Reinvention of Empire. And it focuses on the, the French Empire, French colonial empire from about 1750 to 1802. A big focus of it is this group of thinkers called the Economist or also uh, the Physiocrats. And people might be more familiar with that term, the Physiocrats. So welcome, Panila. 
And um, let's talk about these physiocrats and, and who they were and kind of why you uh, ended up focusing on them for your, for your book. Yeah. Thanks, first of all, so much for having me on your um, podcast. So the physiocrats who were they, or as I, as I um, say in the book, they were initially known as the economist. And then after a good 10 years, they came up with this um, concept of physiocracy for their economic ideas. And then they became known as the physiocrats. And they are basically a group of um, economic thinkers with uh, close contacts to um, elite society in France, both in Paris and uh, at the court of Versailles. One of the two co-founders is a, a doctor at court, and the other one is a nobleman from um, Aix-en-Provence in the south of France, but who is really sort of in the years leading up to um, his collaboration with François Kiné, um, the doctor is trying to fashion himself as a political economist. What, what attracted you to these guys? Because you know, I've read about them. They kind of show up. You know, when you read about the French Revolution, you'll sometimes see some references to physiocrats mm-hmm. in, the, in the run-up. But what what attracted you these these guys in this this line of thought um, as you began this exploration of, of the French colonial empire? Yeah, it's funny you should say that you sort of come across them when you study the French Revolution because that's exactly how I came across them too. I was yeah. very interested in um, this moment during the French Revolution where the French revolutionaries are struggling with this question of whether they should uh, abolish slavery or not. Um, and then in some of the works that have already come out on this moment and this kind of tension in the French Revolution, they briefly sort of have these throwaways about how these were um, ideas and discussions that sort of were taken up by the physiocrats decades earlier. And then they're sort of lifted at that. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, was, I couldn't really find much about, so what did these physiocrats say and who were they? And so um, that basically became sort of my way into dis- to studying these people. That's I, I love that because it's it's such a good illustration of how, you know, we come to our research and we it, it's often is just these kind of you see a, a reference to something you hadn't heard of before or you see enough references and can't get details and that that kind of gets you digging more and more into these these topics. So it's 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 kind of a fascinating look into, you know, where we come up with our research interests. It's often this kind of uh, sometimes coincidence, sometimes uh, accident. Um, and then so once you started looking more and more into them, what did you find about them that, that kind of kept your interest? Um, well, I, um, I, I, first of all, I just was so struck by what I felt was sort of like the sort of more forward-looking elements of the ideas. You know, they were writing in the 50s and 60s, and they were already there talking about um, things that we normally associate with the 19th century, particularly when we think about economic mm-hmm. ideas. So they were sort of promoters of free trade, and they were emphasizing the value of free labor over slave labor. They were articulating really sort of strong critiques of um, the old regime approach to colonial empire with these kind of sort of um, mercantilist political economy and based on this very exploitative type of um, enslaved labor. And uh, these are normally things that come up uh, in the books, mostly from the time of the French Revolution and then moving forward. And I was just struck that they were already articulating these ideas in the 1750s. So that was the one thing. And then as I, you know, again, started digging, so I asked myself, why are, you, why are they talking about them in, you know, like colonial ideas in this way? This seems kind of unique. And then I started looking into their backgrounds and the social context within which they were formulating these ideas and sort of 
got into this whole moment of a French um, imperial crisis and also their personal networks, um, particularly sort of leading me into the colonies, both to uh, the Caribbean, but also to West Africa. Yeah. And, you know, one of the interesting things about it is the sources you're looking at are, are not your typical sources for looking at empire um, in the sense that, you know, there are sources that are connected to the state, certainly. But a lot of these guys are just they're people who are kind of within the empire. Some of them like uh, the, um, the is the Marquis de, de Mirabeau, who's one of your key figures. Yeah. I'm, I'm forgetting all the titles. There's the Comte and there's the Marquis and there's the Chevalier yes. de, de Mirabeau. Um, he um, he's, you know, back home in France, but he's very interested in the colonies. And he has this correspondence with his brother, who's serving as, I believe, the governor of Guadeloupe. That's right. Talk about that that relationship a little bit, because that seems to be a pretty formative relationship in really, I mean, the development of, of some key ideas of, of the physiocrats. Yeah. yeah, it's quite interesting because they, um, so the Marquis de Mirabeau is the older brother and he's the one who wants to sort of become a, a, a an, an intellectual or an economist in sort of in modern terms. And he, he he's sort of starting to write things and want to publish things. And then his little brother with whom he's very, very close, they have an extremely close relationship. Um, he he uh, tries to have a career within the French Navy. And the colonies at the time were uh, within the Ministry of the Marine um, or the Ministry of the Navy, as we'd say in English. And so um, he starts out uh, sort of working um, within the Navy and then he takes on this position as governor in the colonies, um, uh, particularly the colony of Guadeloupe in the late or the early 1750s. And as he goes to Guadeloupe, they start having this really rich correspondence where we see the brother back in France who sort of moves between Versailles and Paris and the South. Um, it, he has all these ideas and theories of, of political economy that he's getting from other um, published figures at the time. And he sort of tries to articulate what will become his, his sort of part of physiocracy later on, various... Um, uh, interpretations of what kind of colonial system he thinks that France should have. He responds to his brother's many complaints about sort of the inadequacies of the French colonial system at the time. And so through that correspondence, we really get to see how much of the what later will become a economic doctrine grows out of sort of uh, uh, this older brother's attempt to respond to the real problems on the ground that his brother is describing in his letters, um, you know, problems about... Um, the loyalty of a white uh, uh, settler population in the colonies, the problems about having this really kind of violent form of racial slave labor in the colonies, questions about commerce and free trade, questions about uh, a rule from a top down and um, whether that's despotic or not. So many of the things that sort of bubble up in the published writings of the economists later on, we sort of see uh, sort of the, the the real context from which they they um, rise in this correspondence. Yeah, so he's he's basing his ideas then on this uh, an actual set of facts, an actual set of circumstances that he's getting directly from somebody on the ground. Yeah, which which does give it a, a lot more depth than than it otherwise would, because I think there's a lot of writing from this kind of Enlightenment era, where where scholars are kind of you know, pulling information from some sources, and it's often not good sources, I think specifically about a lot of the writings about Asia and, and China in particular, which are based on such limited knowledge, and they're making these grand claims based on that limited knowledge. Mm -hmm, yeah. But here you have these these guys, uh, oh, I'm sorry, uh, the elder Mirabeau in particular, who's just seems to be fascinated by everything on the ground in, in the colonies and is um, coming to some pretty significant conclusions as a result of that. Um, and I, I think one of the, the for me, 
one of the fascinating things was just the empire that's kind of revealed through those uh, correspondences and, and also just more broadly through your own descriptions of it. We often think of, I, I think, you know, in the kind of traditional narratives of, of empire and, and kind of Europe during this era in the 18th century, this is the emergence of, of European domination. And you think about kind of the strength and, and dominance of these empires. But then you actually read about the empires and they seem to be much more marked by, by crisis and uncertainty than, than dominance and strength. Um, and I, I think that's, you know, absolutely what's kind of coming across from the, the younger Mirabeau, Mirabeau as he's writing to his brother. It's just problems everywhere. Um, you know, that seem to be kind of intractable. They're not, they're not solvable because, you know, as you, as you get across, people are benefiting from the empire. There's people who are earning, you know, profits and, and revenue from the empire. And as long as that's happening, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of drive to, to really create the, the kind of reforms that will strengthen and, and allow this empire to survive. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, that, that's right. So there's no sort of long-term planning. It's sort of because they are immediately benefiting and making profits from the current system, even though lots of people are actually aware that this is not sustainable in the long run and it has sort of inherent really, really deep problems, they're not prepared to solve them, whether we're talking now about the merchants who are investing in it or the planters or even people uh, within um, political positions of power, so ministers and, and, and administrators and other officials. They, they, they even sort of express an acknowledgement of these problems, but they are, there is no sort of like a deeper will to really address it because it also seems to be sort of um, very profitable in the short term. Yeah, and, and I think with with the Chevalier de Mirabeau in Guadeloupe, I mean, in one of the letters you you quote, he's, you know, he's he's critical of slavery and the kind of uh, inhumanity of, of the institution. At the same time, he's also requesting, I think, three hundred more more slaves for the island. Um, at the same time that he's talking about, you know, uh, the murder and torture that that the white plantation owners are inflicting upon their enslaved class. Um, at the same time, he's saying there's nothing we can do about it because if we do. You know, the plantation owners are going to rebel. It, it's just, you know, I, I assume that for, for Mirabeau, you know, the idea of being the governor of Guadalupe, he probably saw as this, this great opportunity to make some changes, to, uh, to put his stamp on it. But the reality is, it seems like that these kind of governors in this colonial empire are very limited in what they could actually do, the kinds of uh, effects they can actually have, we'll say. On their colonies yeah and, and it's in some ways it's almost like a, a contradiction right because they're they're there as representatives of what is con considered an absolute monarch right and they're just they're, they're there right. sort of um with having that kind of authority invested in them but at the same time on the ground they feel so ill-equipped to do anything both because of local circumstances and like, the power of, of local um political communities particularly they they rely on them the, the support of the white planter communities there and the loyalty of the local planter communities, they rely on um, the enslaved populations remaining docile. But at the same time, they also rely on the fact that they have to have an administration higher up back in the home country, so back at Versailles, that will actually respond to their many letters of complaint, right? And that will, and often they're just yeah. met with walls of silence. Right. So, so one of the frustrations that really comes out of their private correspondence is this frustration with Versailles, either not wanting to um, respond to many of the things that he proposes um, to, to, to reform or just ignoring him purposefully because they, they don't want to deal with, with, with his um, complaints. Right. It's such an um, important kind of picture to get of, of empire. And particularly, I think maybe these overseas empires, 
because they're really not systems that are engineered to, to any kind of perfection. <laughs> they're kind of created through, through improvisation and they're just people figuring things out at the moment. And then over the course of decades or even centuries, it just becomes a system and that system is so it's so much part of the status quo. It, it becomes impossible to change and you get the sense that people at the top don't even really want to you know, think about it so much. Uh, you have this quote that, that I think is, is perfect for this situation, but also just more broadly about this, this kind of modern world that's coming into creation. You said uh, they were typically concerned with how to survive and profit from the French colonial empire. That's, that's ultimately it. Like, yeah. We're not going to create the most efficient possible empire. We're not going to perfect the system, but we are going to try to keep it going and profit for as long as possible. And for, you know, for the, the elder Mirabeau, he sees this as this is a doomed project in some ways, right? He, he's kind of predicting that this is going to reach its natural end at some point. He actually even, I think I have this right, he actually predicts the uh, the breakup of, of the British uh, North American empire. He, he says that there's going to be independence for the 13 colonies in the near future because he sees you know, the similar kinds of issues going on there as well. Yeah, he's writing about this. I mean, they both are also to each other, but the, the older Mirabeau is publishing his work in 1756, um, where he, he actually says, we're going to see uh, the independence of the 13 colonies, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they also talk about this in private, and there, of course, there's this interesting sort of nuance between the older and the younger, because the younger who's actually there in the Americas says, uh, sure, that will work for colonies like the ones um, on the North American continent who sort of have everything they need to become self-sustaining and therefore independent, whereas the colonies that I am in that are sort of focusing on this kind of monocrop culture, they too will break away from the metropole, but they won't immediately seek independence. They will just look for another metropole, another mother country that they feel would um, respond better to their immediate needs in terms of, so for them in terms of providing more slaves or, or more sort of reliable provisions and building materials and and give better prices for for the for their sugar or their cotton and their coffee right so basically there's a distinction there that he that he wants to point out to his brother yeah and I, I doesn't the the elder refers to the 13 colonies and the relationship with Britain is almost incestuous like there's you can't have these two yeah. Uh, family members, right, yeah. existing in the system because they're doing the same things. Yeah. They exist in the same way. Yes. You need to have something like this French colonial empire where you have these plantation colonies that cannot exist without the metropole buying their stuff and providing them with, with you know. And, and, you know, this is something I don't know that I was so aware of is just how hard it was even for these these uh, these colonies to even get just like foodstuffs and you just said building materials and just basic things. Yes. That they would have these huge crises where there just wasn't enough food literally to uh, to supply the, the population, in, including those on the plantations themselves. Yes, and that's of course because so when we speak about the colonies, particularly in the Caribbean, it, it would take weeks before you know sometimes up to several months before ships would would come. And in this region, which back then as much as today was sort of like hurricane uh, prone, and there were volcanic and yeah. eruptions, and there were earthquakes, right? They would need immediate assistance. But that was something the, the the metropole would not just not be able to supply right away, right? And that's also part of that whole context for uh, why we now talk a lot about how it's actually smuggling that is sustaining these these economies in in, um, mm -hmm. in this period. Yeah. As we shift just a little bit, I, I I do want to talk about some of the ideas that start coming out of these physiocrats, um, the, you know, the elder Maribou himself, but also some others. But one of the one of the ones that that just floored me the most was that it's it's the um the uh marquis de mirabeau who invents the word civilization yes and when i read that it just it just hit me across the face because 
you don't think of a term like that having to be invented, I guess. Or, I, but but he's first used it in a letter to his brother, and then it enters into his writing and very quickly kind of spreads across the intellectual world of of, of Europe. So, can you talk about you know how he sees this idea of civilization and how it's being used, and then what what impact that idea of civilization is going to have on on later thinking about the broader world. Yeah, yeah, thank you for noticing that. It's um, So historians, uh, they have already pointed out that Mirabeau coined the word civilization and they trace it back to this 1756 book. And they often say mm-hmm. that at this time, what he was basically talking about was sort of like a, a developed state of agricultural production because he's, you know, he's one of those who's so um, enamored with the, the importance of, of agriculture, uh, like many other political economists at the time. Um, but they haven't really coupled at this point um, the, the, the coining of it, this word to um, colonial empire, which uh, becomes such an important um, uh, connection later on. But then, um, as I was researching the correspondence, um, I found that, they, that he actually uses this word for the first time two years earlier, so in 1754, precisely when he talks about the French role in the Americas and, and he criticizes um, what they do there in terms of their colonial efforts and also with their military presence there. And then he praises um, uh, missionaries instead for, and then he says, for bringing civilization to to this continent, right? So, and there he uses it as a noun, that's something that's exportable, that they actually are bringing or, or making sure can flourish in, on this new continent, which of course is going to have precisely this kind of um, connotation later on, when particularly the French um, and all other Europeans start talking about how Europe is civilized and has attained a high level of civilization, and that is going to justify um, their uh, colonial ambitions in other places, particularly in Africa, much later, right, when, with what we now call the mission to civilize. Right. But the word itself then actually was, from the moment it was coined, already associated to such projects. So I, I, I take that also as sort of like a, uh, and, and explore that in the con- context of, of these new ideas of political economy that is being articulated in response to this uh, broader French uh, imperial crisis. And, and one of the key you know, places it's going to go, one of the key arguments of the book is that you know, we often see this history of the French colonial empire. And I, I think, you know, more broadly, just this is often how history is presented in general is it's these stories of kind of development and rupture, right? Yes. These these moments where things end and then a new stage begins. But, you know, with an example like this term civilization, it's first used, did you say 1756 is when it first shows up in in uh, in his book around the 1750s? Um, so it shows up then, but then when we, we kind of most associate it with empires in the in the 19th century. Yes. And so what you're kind of showing is that it's not as simple as saying there's this story and that it ends with a French Revolution, then a new story begins, you know, after Napoleon, that there are these continuities that, that f- flow throughout. And you use this, this term, you talk about polyrhythmic history. Yes. Um, as, as a way of kind of getting across, you know, the, the, the way that um, we can kind of see history apart from, from rupture. So can you just, you know, talk about what polyrhythmic history means to you um, and how it how it can open up new ways of thinking about, you know, change and continuity in, in our study of history. Yeah, yeah. Um, so basically, it was sort of my way of sort of resisting what many of us sort of fall into very easily, which is thinking about history as a linear process. 
And so mm-hmm. within the broader history of the French colonial empire, we historians um, time and time again talk about the first French colonial empire, which was sort of seen as rooted in um, uh, slavery and anchored in the Americas and being sort of this very exploitative type of empire that is also following an economic um, system that is attached to um, mercantilist ideas and visions. And then all of this breaks down with the French Revolution. And then during the French Revolution, we see sort of a new set of ideas that become the intellectual underpinnings of a so-called second colonial empire that then steadily rises in the 19th century, is um, underpinned by a French mission to civilize and particularly sort of is is, uh, focusing on the African continent. And so um, what I'm trying to sort of argue and, and why I use this idea of a polyrhythmic history is because um, sort of to, to dismiss for a moment or just put aside this kind of linear, linear narrative and say, well, actually, if you look at um, the evolution of, of um, French colonial empire, we, we have already at the time where we see that we talk about like a decline of the so-called first colonial empire, all these innovative processes um, that sort of um, ha- creates modes of empire that seem to resemble more what happens um, during the French Revolution intellectually in what they're articulating, but also what's going to start happening on the ground later on in the 19th and 20th centuries, both with respect to um, colonies in the Caribbean, but also in, in respect to what happens later on in, in North and West Africa. And so when we, when we think about it that way, so the linearity of, of French colonial empire um, sort of collapses, right? Because you see that mm-hmm. suddenly there are these sort of rhythms of change that don't correspond to that. And so you have these multiple rhythms of change that are going on in parallel. Sometimes they intersect, they inter- uh, or they connect, or they just run in parallel. And then they stop, but then they may actually research, uh, come up again at right. a different point. Um, and then they might find, so for instance, for the ideas that I explore, they might um, initially not find very fertile ground, so they don't become sort of like a whole dominating uh, mode of empire. But then later on, they come up again, and they, the, the context has totally changed. And so then they actually right. find fertile ground, and they become much more sort of dominant, and maybe actually eventually uh, evolve into the dominant um, uh, uh, system of empire um, later on. So when we sort of think about it in this way, we start to think about history and listening to to the past um, to to the various rhythms of change that were uh, running parallel to each other. So that's why I use this kind of it's a musical uh, sort of term, right, of the polyrhythmic um, right. uh, 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 progression of history. Yeah. I love it because the, I mean the old rupture, the idea of these ruptures is, it's kind of self reinforcing, right? Because if if you are going reading stories that that talk about the rupture of the French Revolution or, or whatever it is, you know, whatever you're studying these, these rupture points, then you know, kind of naturally you're not going to look for anything that opposes that. You're going to accept the rupture idea and you're going to continue to tell your story in the same way. But once you kind of get rid of that and you introduce this, I mean, I guess these polyrhythmic versions of the story, these polyrhythmic uh, approaches, we'll say to history then it allows us to start seeing much more that, you know, much more of what's out there instead of being enslaved to these traditional ways. I mean, if, if our podcast is devoted to anything, it's getting rid of these traditional narratives of, of history. And it seems like this polyrhythmic approach is, is such a great tool to get around the limitations of, of these old narratives. 
Yeah, thanks. And it's also, and you know, it's not even just rupture that sort of dominates because con we always think of history as continuity and rupture, right? But continuity right, yeah, yeah. can break and then come back again. It doesn't have to be like constant, yeah. right? And so that's also sort of one of the things that I'm trying to get at in the book. You can't say that, of course, there's like continuity and there's just uh, no disruption at all. For certain, you know, the revolution in many ways was, right. a, was a rupture, but it, it doesn't mean that things that happened before that doesn't somehow come back again or, you know, sort of um, continues to evolve, maybe not at the center, but then at the margins, right? So it's a, it's making for sort of an argument for a more, much more capacious history. Yeah. Well, and the, and the, the physiocrats are, are such a great example of that because, you know, they have a, a kind of a brief period of, of prominence. Uh, certainly, you know, their writings are, are, are pretty popular. I don't know that too many of them actually attain really high positions in, in the state. Is that... Maybe a, a couple, right? Turgot is kind of associated with it. Yeah, so Turgot. Yeah, that's right? That right. I mean, Turgot, he would himself like uh, turn around or roll in his grave if we called him a physiocrat. Or, yeah, yeah. Right. But he certainly, you know, sort of was a, a, a supporter of the physiocrats. And he himself becomes first the minister of the Navy and then he a finance minister. And there were other people who sort of had high ranking positions within the administration who who um, supported the physiocrats or saw themselves as sort of followers of their doctrine, right? But um, but they right. but the main writers and the main thinkers uh, that we associate with the sort of the the hardcore group of, of political economists, only one was ever an administrator, and that was um, Le Marseillais de la Riviere, who was an, an intendant in the colony of Martinique. So he he had this mm -hmm. kind of administrative position, but the others were either journalists or just sort of thinkers, political economists, and then we had Kinney, who was then um, a doctor at court. Right. They don't get these that, that many of these high positions. Um, people are, I think, other people are very dismissive of their ideas often, right? I think you, you have a few places where they're criticized for being uh, too involved in theory. Isn't that the, a common critique of them? <laughs> that is, that they, exactly. They're too theoretical or something like that? Yes. Um, but you get to a certain point, and I think even during, during the time of the French Revolution, where people are criticizing and critiquing the physiocrats in one sentence and then basically promoting their ideas in the next sentence without actually saying that these are physiocratic ideas, right? These ideas are, are wor worming their way into the general consciousness, into the conversation, even though people are not necessarily giving credit to the, the physiocrats for, for developing those ideas. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, many of their ideas... Uh you know, have these long afterlives and they may not actually, you know, mm. the whole core of the doctrine may not sort of stand the test of time. But in many ways, lots of the things that they were proposing were so successful that it's incorporated into the thinking of people later on without them even recognizing that this is actually right. ideas that were formulated initially by the physiocrats. And that's a great way to get into one, one of the key ideas of the physiocrats. One of the things that I think really does separate them is that at least with, um, with Mirbeau, He's an abolitionist from a pretty early period at a point when the abolition movement has really not developed yet, like in England, where we tend to associate, you know, these abolitionist movements emerging in the later 18th century. Yeah. He's even kind of preceding that. Um, and while not all physiocrats seem as devoted to abolition as, as he was, and even he kind of goes back and forth, it seems, um, when you start seeing these abolitionist societies emerging, I think probably just prior to the revolution and, and then during. Yes. Um, it's made up of a lot of people who are either physiocrats themselves or have some influence from the physiocrats. And so they, they can claim some um, some credit for the emergence of, a, of abolitionism as an intellectual idea in in France. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And it's uh, it's interesting because that is also something that very few people 
um, talk about today, but um, it's because at the time, during the French Revolution, the physiocrats have fallen out of favor and they have somehow been associated mm -hmm. with like terrible policies of the free circulation of grain in the 60s, which led to all these kinds of uh, bread riots, right? So, you, you right. know, people don't really want to sort of say, yes, this is what the physiocrats saying. So they're not really saying anything, but we know that they were inspired by them because some of the literature that they send across the channel to the English uh, abolitionist, abolitionist society is precisely sort of um, um, journals that uh, we know uh, included physiocratic arguments against slavery. Mm -hmm. So, so the, the French abolitionists, as this uh, society gets going, they don't actually have much literature that they can send to the to British abolitionists. It's mostly British abolitionists sending their sources to the French. But the, some of the few things that they can send over are these um, writings by the physiocrats that come from sort of the, the seven, early 70s, right, where there was this important discussion in a, a physiocratic journal about the um, um, the what they see as a as a sort of an economic proof that free labor is 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 better than slave labor, and so we know that they right. were deeply inspired by these ideas, right? And as I say in the book, one of them is also the son of the Marquis de Mirabeau. So <laughs> yeah. the connection is clearly one there. of the most famous figures of the early French Revolution. Really, yeah, he's the uh, son of a which Peter you know Rex. that's where I saw that that name Mirabeau in the first is the Comte de Mir Mirabeau, um, and then only after reading this book did I realize oh he's part of this longer you know, tradition of these very active and engaged thinkers in, in, in France. Yeah. Um, when, when they talked about abolition, I mean, I, I guess with, with anything it's complex, but were they taking that as kind of a moral stance or, or was it more, you know, that this was the better way to run a society, but they didn't really, the morality of it wasn't that important to them or, or wasn't as central, I, I should say. Yeah, it's, it's actually, a, you know, a, a hard question to answer because it, as I said before, it sort of depends on who, what, which one of the physiocrats of whom we are looking at. Right. But at the same time, then they themselves aren't being particularly upfront about it, um, because at some moments they will sort of push a moral argument, but then they will switch and say we don't even need to do that because economically, slavery is an irrational system and and um, it is a what they call a perversion of the natural order which they see sort of i guess mm -hmm. the economic laws that sort of dominate society and should sort of influence society so so they basically just say that it, it it's it's a, an irrational system it's um it's it's not a, a logical one it's not a profitable one you can get much better more out of free labor in terms of sort of like the productivity than you can from um, slave labor so they make that argument but they also actually stress uh, that this is, of course, also deeply exploitative and you know associated mm -hmm. with such horrible violence. The thing is, um, because particularly the the uh, one of the co-founders of François Kiné is so adamant that he wants his uh, political economy to be a science, he's the one who sort of tries to sort of strip away any kind of historical example and reference to 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 history and to actual <laughs> systems of no exploitation right. because he wants to make it a theory right so it depends a little bit about who we look at and then of course some of the some of the uh, physiocrats they don't even want to say that they say yes in theory free labor is better but we also know right now enslaved labor in the colonies is just what we need to have a higher production of sugar right so there there is a difference right. of course yeah which is so it's so important because um you know like i, I was just saying and, and you were talking about there is this 
emerge an abolition, abolitionist movement. And it does gain some traction, you know, in the early part of the French Revolution. But the French revolutionaries themselves, when the revolution, you know, hits in, in 1789, the develops over the next few years, there doesn't seem to be that great of a push for abolition, despite all the rhetoric about, about freedom and liberty and all these things. Abolition gets talked about a little bit, but doesn't seem to be ever really a, a real threat that it's going to happen. And so you think about the French Revolution, which we, we tend to think of as far more radical than the American Revolution, of course. Um, in the American Revolution, there's even less talk about abolition uh, as being part of the revolution. And so when, you know, a discussion of abolition actually proceeds and, and develops, it's, it's late in the French Revolution. And what, what allows it to take hold, you know, by I think it's 1795, where it wasn't really taking hold in that first period from like the 17, 1789 to 92 or so. Yeah. What's changed, I guess, What's changed, yeah. So basically um, what changed is the giant slave uprising in the Caribbean. We know mostly that there was yeah. this uh, slave uprising on Saint-Domingue. And of course, that's the one successful slave uprising in the New World, which leads to the founding of Haiti. But there were actually slave right. uprisings also on Guadeloupe and Martinique and French Guyana at this time. And so it is um, not until we have the beginning of this uh, uprising. And then once France then also faces a war, because, you know, with late or sort of from 1792 and into 93, France declares war basically on all of its neighbors, right? So, so on everybody, yeah. on everybody. And that includes, of course, those that have a colonial empire. So the British and the Spanish, for instance, and they have coveted for a long time the French sugar colonies because they are so famous for being sort of the main producers of sugar uh, on, a, on a global scale, right? France is the exporter of sugar to the European markets and particularly this colony mm -hmm. of Saint-Domingue. So um, what the French basically have to do to preserve uh, their, their hold on the colony as the slaves rise up and they face um, these uh, enemies at sea, the British and the Spanish, is that they, they, they feel they have to say to um, the, the rebels, if you, if you fight for us on our side, then you can have um, your freedom. And, it, and then right. they are forced eventually to extend that, not just to those who fight on the side of the French, but also their families, and then make sort of broader proclamations about um, the abolition of slavery, not just on Saint-Domingue then, but also then throughout uh, the French colonies in general. And so right. basically, the, the only reason, at least in my view, the only reason why the French are finally able to live up to the revolutionary principles as they have been inscribed in the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen is because there is this slave uh, rebellion in their most valuable sugar colony. Which it, it's so important to, you know, this is another example where you you just kind of bring in this one thing and suddenly it really changes the way we think about this entire history of, of you know, of this, this like kind of last stages of the slave trade and, and slavery in this, in this wider Atlantic world because, you know, abolition is often presented as this thing that's granted, right? That the, you know, that the British passed their the slave act in you know 1832 or whatever uh, the the emancipation proclamation in the united states as these these kind of gifts to the enslaved people but you know what we're seeing here is that this quote-unquote gift only came when the entire system became so untenable that they had no choice but to but to do it right yep, I mean, in some yeah. ways the, the society yeah. yeah freedom is taken it's not given exactly yeah yeah, yeah. so it, it's so important to i think present that and that actually you know, kind of leads me into one thing I wanted to, to talk to you about is just because this there's so this this book is so rich in in kind of details and ideas. Um, but one of the 
big questions I like to to kind of think about when I read stuff like this is so how can we how can we use this in the classroom? And not even you know assigning the book necessarily, but the the ideas here. How does that? How can we work that into a, a you know a, a section where we're talking about early modern empire? What are what are the kind of the key kind of takeaways that that a, a instructor can use from your research that that will work in the classroom and maybe re, allow them to rethink the way we present this story of early modern empire or European overseas empire more specifically? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think of course it, that would very much depend on uh, the focus on the course, right? But. Um, but, right. but you, you, if you were to sort of talk about early modern empires, and you mentioned this a little bit in the beginning, um, if we think of, of this as like a, a moment where Europe is really leaping ahead on a global level and establishing all these successful colonial empires on a global scale, of course, one part of the book is showing that this was in no way sort of a, a, a given that Europe was going to leap ahead and be sort of a global force because they were struggling on the ground to even just preserve tiny, tiny islands in the Caribbean or along right. the coast of West Africa. Yeah. We haven't talked much about West Africa not yet, but you know, we also see in the book, I talk about what the French are doing in West Africa and they are completely uh, at the mercy of local uh, populations there. And of course, also the climate. So we're not talking, if you look at the early modern um, European expansion as a one long success story that, that then leads to this like global world dominance in the 19th century. None of this was a given, if you ask me. <laughs> yeah, that I mean, that seems to be like the key thing, right? Because it totally shifts the way this stuff is is often talked about. Um, but to, to see all the problems we're having to see the crisis. And, and yes, thank you. We, we should talk about West Africa as well, because I mean, to me, that's that's the example where they they want that foothold so badly, right? They want access to to uh, to the territories themselves, but all, uh, obviously also, you know, the access to the slave trade in West Africa. Yeah. And it's such a struggle. There, you, you you go over so many of these different experiments and attempts to craft something that will last there, uh, some some way the French can gain access to territory and, and wealth there. And, um, you know, getting back to the physiocrats, they have their own ideas about what to do with West Africa that really, you know, ends up being one of the more influential sets of ideas they have. So what's what's their plan for West Africa? Yeah, well, they're, they're looking at what's going on um, um, in West Africa. And of course, they see that this is basically deeply exploitative, you know, where uh, thousands and thousands of people are being transported across the Atlantic um, and dying on board ships uh, during the Middle Passage and are then just sent into slavery in the Caribbean. And why is this happening? Well, it's because they need their labor to produce um, grass crops, right? And so what they say to themselves, and because they are, um, you know, really emphasizing so much sort of the, the, the importance of agricultural development, is that they say, well, why, why are we doing this? Why are we not just thinking mm -hmm. about actually producing uh, these commodities in Africa, where some of them are even native to, 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 to regions in Africa themselves, right? So cotton, for instance. And so they're saying, so basically what we should do is just get rid of that whole colonial project that is, is, is you know, so deeply exploitative and start developing Africa instead. And initially we'll do that through the cultivation of the cash crops that we're getting from the Caribbean. So sugar, coffee, cotton, indigo, uh, and so on. And then we will use local labor. We don't need to, you know, separate kids from their parents and mothers from their husbands and fathers and so on. But we can just let them stay there. Um, and help them develop these kinds of commodities. And then what we will do is that we will buy them 
buy it from them in exchange from our um, manufactured goods. And of course, this is very much sort of the rationale that was sort of emerged in the 19th century in, in, in sort of like amongst liberals, right? That this is sort of an idea that they will take up later on. Yeah. And it's the same assumption, which is that, of course, this is a mutually beneficial thing in the sense that we get the stuff we want. We get to sell you the stuff we make. And then civilization, I guess, and that, that somehow that equals civilization for Africa, that they're now producing stuff for European markets. Um, this seems to be the big, the biggest flaw in this whole idea is, is the idea that that this is somehow good for Africa because it's providing the French or you know broader European markets with with these things they need. But that's uh, it, basically the problem the, with empire. Nobody asks or consults those on the receiving end of it, right? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Well, and and why the idea this idea that Mirabeau comes up with of civilization is so important, right? Because that becomes the ultimate justification for all this is that. No matter what you you do, it can be justified in terms of well the progress of civilization. That you know Africans need to be able to grow this stuff and be involved in this global marketplace, or they're not civilized. Um, and you know we don't need to look into that too closely. Uh, but uh, but that you know that does become kind of the underlying assumption, or at least justification, of a lot of these imperial projects from this point on. I mean, definitely more so in the late nineteenth later nineteenth century. But you you show really well how that conversation is already happening. Yeah. Um, you know, when we're in the 1770s, 80s, 90s and on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so I've, I think I've, I've kept you long enough, but I do want to ask you about something you're involved with um, at Pitt, and that is the um, Early Modern Worlds Initiative. Yeah. Can you just talk a little bit about, about what that is and maybe how it's uh, um, impacted your own thinking about the early modern world? Yeah, so it's a it's an initiative where so we I'm so fortunate to be at an institution where we have uh, quite a number of early modernists, not just within the history department, but also in different uh, departments that looks at the, um, this early modern period, but not only within Europe, but also sort of on a uh, more globally. And so um, pluralizing early modern world as early modern worlds um, is one way of sort of thinking about um, this moment uh, as not yet uh, a, a fully integrated uh, one world, but that there are multiple early modern worlds in parallel, um, but also that it isn't really one that should just be dictated based on a, a European periodization alone and uh, sort of mm -hmm. assessed according to sort of European uh, um, understandings of modernity or early modernity. So that's a whole pluralization of it. Um, but that we can also think of, you know, sort of like early modern um, China, for instance, is a good example where I know that this whole idea of early modern China is sort of um, uh, sort of quite established. Um, and so, yeah. so, so studying this, uh, and not just sort of from a purely sort of historical uh, or through a purely historical approach, uh, but also through um, you know engagement with people who work on the same period, but through as art historians or. Uh, in literature um, uh, and or in music, for instance, right? So we so we are sort of a number of scholars who sort of come together and try, try to foster um, collaboration or conversations um, within Pitt um, about this early modern period uh, and early modern worlds in the plural. That's that's incredible. I mean, because so much of our focus on the podcast is is how do we create this history without borders? How do we undo these kind of constructed borders that, you know, both exist in the world, you know, in terms of physical uh, or, or national boundaries, but also just in the way we think and who we can talk to and what kind of conversations we can have. And I love hearing, you know, anytime where, where people are trying to have these conversations across what are traditionally 
these boundaries of, of, of thought. So sounds like an amazing project. Has it kind of opened your eyes to anything about, about this broader world? Has it influenced your own thinking at all? It, it certainly has uh, in terms of, um, for instance, also just the interdisciplinarity of it or the transdisciplinarity. Mm -hmm. So we have also... Um, uh, uh, one of the projects that's sort of grown out of this is in collaboration with the um, medieval and renaissance group here and we're talking about um, gun violence and its histories and so just thinking mm -hmm. about gun violence on a global scale across uh, periods and continents but also from the perspective of somebody who studies it in terms of um, theater or uh, um, in terms of performance, or in terms of uh, depictions in paintings, or somebody like myself, for instance, would think of it as sort of like an, there's an early modern arms trade that connects uh, European um, manufacturing to the purchase of slaves in West Africa, to the selling of weapons in North America, and uh, sort of like inter uh, um, sort of interrivalry in uh, amongst Native Americans and um, and so on, right? So, but sort of having these conversations and thinking about gun violence uh, uh, along these different avenues and different disciplines has really enriched me in sort of thinking about this in a much broader way than I would had I just remained within my own discipline and with my own field. Um, so, so yeah, so that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a good lesson that, I mean, sometimes we need to make ourselves a little uncomfortable, right? Go outside of our, our comfort zones a little bit because it, it can be so useful for us as, as thinkers about, about the world to, um, to be exposed to these things that we hadn't thought about or wouldn't have been exposed if we didn't open ourselves up to these, these broader conversations. Yeah. Um, so th thank you so much for being with us, Pernille. Um, thank you so much for having me. You know, I, yeah, I, I see you have a, a new book project coming. Is that, uh, how's that, how's that coming? Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's coming. <laughs> it's been a little difficult now with the pandemic to get into the archives. And, yeah. yeah and um, um, as I know, many of us uh, scholars also express uh, <laughs> it's also hard with all the homeschooling. But um, I know. Yeah, yeah. But but yeah, it's coming. It's a, it's a project that looks I changed empire. If you want to look at the Danish colonial empire, which is sort of um, operating in parallel with the French colonial empire. But this time around, I'm interested in telling the story of this smaller uh, but yet global colonial empire but through the lens of the foreigners as much as sort of like national a national lens but through the lens of foreigners that mm. move through the colonial empire invest in it settle in it um exploit it so i think of it and i call the book project a gateway to empire so basically how as much about how others use different colonial empires to to participate in empire even if they themselves may turn to a state that doesn't have a colonial empire. It's amazing. So really what, what I was asking that is that, that was my invitation for you to come back on and talk about that one. Whenever that project is done, <laughs> uh, love we'd to. love to have you back on. <laughs> I'd love to come. To talk about it. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> All right. This has been great. Thank you. Thanks so much. There's a crack in the Well, that was fantastic, uh, Josh. Uh, well done. I thought that the the two of you found uh, a kind of uh, you know, easy rapport there in talking about what I guess most people consider to be, you know, fairly, uh, you know, acute <laughs> uh, and and specific, uh, you know, historical matter. Uh, but I got to tell you, you know. Listening to a scholar, listening to, to Pernilla talk about 
you know, these sources that she uh, had at one point in her life, you know, been immersed in uh, Mm -hmm. that in some ways, you know, that that archive can, I'm sure, seem like it's, you know, a a world removed from from our day to day existence. But you become so fluent and so conversant and so knowledgeable, you know, in those those archival sources. Uh, And to hear her talk about it, you know, reminds me why I get excited about this stuff in the first place. Absolutely. You know, um, to the extent if that I'm a, a good interviewer or, or, you know, that's up for debate, certainly. But a big part of that is because I actually like talking about history and then, you know, hearing people talk about their books and, and getting into this stuff. It just excites mm-hmm. me. And it seems like that's the best way to have a conversation about history is to have a common interest in talking about history. And it's it's to me, it's just it fires me up to have these conversations, because like you said, you know, you got we got these amazing people who are digging in these archives and coming up with these new conclusions. And it's just it's reignited my love of history. I'll just put it that way. I agree. And look, there are a lot of directions that a conversation like that can go. But I couldn't help, you know, thinking about uh, even what we were talking about uh, at the beginning of this episode with the uh, presidential debate, uh, because as she defines this polyrhythmic movement to history, you know, Mm. as opposed to that more familiar kind of stock linear conception of history, you know, start at the start and move in a line in some direction uh, that that like a a musical piece, a musical score of some kind, you have different movements going on, you know, at the the same time. And and yes, there are breaks or there, there can be ruptures, but there's always something moving and often uh, new paths of, of continuity. And, you know, I, I was thinking about that debate last night. And, uh, you know, wh- one of the things that comes from this, for me at least, polyrhythmic history, uh, is that if you stand by the narratives as we've laid them out of the nation state, which are tend to be linear, right? I mean, yeah. Uh, history is all, it's going in a direction, it's going in the right direction, in other words, mm-hmm. uh, that you really are left without much, uh, you know, thought of how to confront then the problems, you know, that, that are visited upon you in, in your own life. And, and last night, of course, they asked the question they were trying to, to, to debate uh, Joe Biden, who's, the, you know, the Democratic nominee, and and because uh, Trump has made this, you know, sort of play for you know the law and order um we'll mm-hmm. call it the law and order gambit you know that the richard nixon used back in in the 60s we talked about in an earlier episode of uh, hag and, and so trying to debate you know bait him into you know sounding like the far left whatever that you know trump conjures you know of of, of anyone who's you know who's sort of um on the other side as it were some far left radical whatever mm-hmm. uh, anarchist and so Trump uh, or Biden, rather, you know, has to I guess he feels he's, you know, trying to play for some kind of, you know, centrist or, uh, you know, traditional liberal or something by saying, well, oh, gosh, no, I don't want to defund the police. You know, yeah. there, there's a few bad apples and, you know, we need to give them more help and, and, and that sort of thing. And 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 it struck me, you know, that when you when you live in this narrative that is linear that way and that everything has basically been set up to be right, to be perfect, to be uh, commendable, you know, to be triumphal, that when you come upon a real problem like we have in this country with policing, 
you're just not able to think outside that linearity. You, you know, I mean, the answer is, well, do, do more of the same. Just try to do it a little better or something. Yep. And, and, you know, what it seems to me what Pernilis is suggesting, that's not really how history works. You know, I mean, there's all these mm -hmm. disconnects and, and um, disjunctions and, and, yes, even ruptures, but also continuities amidst that. And that uh, as long as we think in linear terms, we can't think beyond the police, as it were. We have a model. The model uh, is apparently grounded in the national story. And we're better off just maybe trying to reform it or tinker with it. But, you know, I don't think that's how history works. And so if we think in terms of, of a real break, you know, or a real, uh, you know, reset or something, we have to get out of that, that linear mode. Yeah, and especially because, you know, this idea we can just like, if we just do better policing, then it will, will fix this problem is, again, what that overlooks is the way these systems were set up mm -hmm. is not to be successful in the way I think a lot of people think they should be, should work or should be successful. You know, as, as, as we kind of talked about in the interview, this French colonial empire is, is established on the shakiest of ground. <laughs> it's, it's not set up for efficiency. It's not set up for anything other than getting the most sugar, coffee, indigo, mm -hmm. uh, whatever else off these plantations as uh, it's quickly as possible so they can profit and basically the whole system is just well if we can just keep this going for another year another year another year another year then we'll think about what happens next later but that wasn't good enough for the french colonial empire and it's not good enough for our own society either to just say this system that was set up on faulty grounds is something we should continue to try to tinker with and fix around the margins and the edges there comes a point in which reform is not enough it requires abolition and that's becomes part of the debate around around policing but you know, we've been talking about curriculum a lot in our own department. I think it's a, a something we need to think about with curriculum also, right? That you can't just, you know, have good people teaching the Western Civ class because the Western Civ class is inherently faulty and, mm -hmm. and, and needs to be abolished basically mm -hmm. at this point. So um, it's really clarified things for me. Just, you know, even thinking about policing and the systems of policing and then just thinking about systems in general, mm -hmm. um, that there's some things you, you can't fix. They're, they're, they're rotten. Yeah, and I think that uh, as you say that, you know, it, it becomes even clear to me that that what that national that na that narrative grounded in the nation state of that kind of linear triumphal progressive story, what it does, and we said this in the last episode, you know, we were talking about sort of the sanctifying of the past. You know, you you create a kind of sacred. Um, you know, a manifest design of providence or something, and you and you and you engineer that into the story, and so it seems unthinkable. You know, because when you think of it, well, what do you what do you mean defund the police? Because the the police are part of this triumphal story, and it's and you know mm -hmm. it's rooted in this kind of this this sanctity. You know, this this um, nearly you know sort of sacred origin story. But, you know, when you listen to Pernilla and you, and you listen, I'd love that stuff about, you know, the younger Mirabeau, right? The, the brothers, you know, yeah. uh, and the, you know, the one who's in, in Guadalupe, this little sort of fly speck island, you know, somewhere in the West Indies. And, and he's saying, we don't have food, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and there's nobody coming to bring us food. And I've written, you know, a score of letters to the people back in, in Paris and Versailles, and they're not answering my, my letters, you know. So if mm -hmm. it, hopefully a Spanish uh, smuggler or English privateer or somebody will come by pretty soon, we can make a deal with. And you were, you were, you were talking about that in the beginning because, you know, when we, we re-engineer it through the, na the nation-state lens, that doesn't happen, right? There, there's no. somehow the system works like it was supposed to, and it was all leading to something important. 
But if anything, we should say, hey, these systems don't work. There's nothing sacred about the system of policing. It grew out of, you know, slave patrols and other things. There's nothing sacred mm -hmm. about that. We can think in our own day now about some of these polyrhythmic options we might have, you know, to begin building in better mental health counseling and uh, all kinds There's of interventions. interventions that are not yeah, you involving know. shooting people. Yeah. I mean, there are some really interesting ideas out there that are that are circulating, you know, about harm reduction and. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, we get stuck in that, that linear groove. You, you compared it to a, an expressway last time, you know, or, yeah. a, or an interstate or something, and there's no exits. But, you know, listening to Pernilla, it seems that that's, that's a lot of re-engineered, retroactive, you know, gloss that's been applied with this sort of semi-mythic, you know, foundation story or something. You know, we used to say, you know, the book that was written about the Constitution was the miracle of Philadelphia. Well, <laughs> it was not, it's not a miracle, you know, some property-owning yeah. men who had studied a lot of, you know, classical constitutional theory and were trying to, you know, come up with a way to ensure that, you know, you could safely entrust power to certain parties without doing yourselves in. I mean, they knew it was a mess. They knew it was going to be subject to amendment and correction. That's why they put that into the Constitution. They would have never thought, I think, that it somehow was a machine that would go by itself. And yet that's how it all gets written up in the national narrative. And so revisiting the early modern period to to appreciate appreciate you know, just how much they were having to improvise and basically just make shit up, Josh. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think it's really important. I think we talked about this in the interview as well, but um, that, you know, the, this whole narrative of, of kind of the rise of the West and, and this sort of thing is based on these ideas of, of you know, how powerful they were and how dominant they were. And then as Penilla, uh pointed out, like they could barely run <laughs> these dinky little <laughs> islands in the, in the West Indies. Um, they could barely hold on and it required so much you know, stress and, and effort and like these hysterical administrators just trying to get food. And um, it, it really does undermine that that whole triumphal notion of, of the West and what it was. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the, the other thing, I, we didn't get in this quite as much as I wanted to. This is something that really struck me as I was reading the book. Um, and by the way, the book, Economist and the Reinvention of Empire. I want to say that title again. Um, she's talking about this, this moment during the French Revolution. We're now in like 1794, 95. So the, the the reign of terror has has come and gone, and we have this uh, the I believe it's the director at this point. But she uh, in in kind of a, a brilliant bit of understatement, she says the outbreak of revolution in the Caribbean, the fall of the monarchy, the birth of the republic, the declaration of war and the terror, and its end shifted perceptions of what was possible and acceptable. Right, that mm -hmm. up to this point, the idea that we could create these colonies that maybe actually worked, we could maybe uh, get rid of slavery so that the, the ideals that this revolution is supposed to be based on could actually be present within within the system that that stuff was kind of all non-starters you know after mm -hmm. 1789 as they're still trying to exploit these colonies for all their worth and, and get what they can while they can get it um, at a certain point that just becomes untenable right it becomes clear and clear to them largely by the way because of the efforts of enslaved people in the colonies who have risen up on island after island and made the entire system impossible to, to to manage that oh wait maybe now maybe now we need to do something about this now that we've lost control of the whole system we can do something about this and if if i don't know if you guys if listeners can't catch this or not you know I, i'm kind of putting ourselves in the same situation a similar kind of situation right now that you know if you list just the challenges we're going through 
rising, you know, uh, fascism, uh, you know, mm-hmm. environmental catastrophe, pandemic. If you just kind of list the problems and then imagine people saying, well, we, we can't deal with that. That's, you know, we, we got to keep the police system in, in place. We got to keep the same educational system in place. We got to keep the same political structure in place. It's, it's, it sounds absurd. And so kind of seeing the past and seeing this moment in history as this, this moment where it became clear that the system as it was was broken and now it was possible to, to build something new on its ashes. And not to say the French Revolution necessarily did, did that, that successfully, but, but kind of recognizing the moment we're in and, and recognizing as well that, that something new has got to be born out of this because mm-hmm. the, the, the old ways um, have not worked, by the way, and uh, have no chance of working in the future unless there's some radical reinvention of what we are and what we can do and, and what we can be. Very, very well said. And uh, as you mentioned, you know, even on a very local level, as we think about the courses we teach, um, you know, we run up against this, that, uh, you know, as long as something remains unthinkable, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of a fundamental redesign or, or you know, reconstruction or, or, you know, what have you, as long as it remains um, unthinkable, then in effect, it's a kind of violation of that revolutionary spirit you know, yeah. that, that was so profound um, at, at the time. Certainly the French Revolution and, and other revolutions that followed. And in some ways, if not the main way, even in the American Revolution, there there was a moment. I mean, you go back and read somebody like Thomas Paine, and he's very much talking about starting the world over again. Mm-hmm. Now, now, the fact that more conservative interests would eventually intervene and, you know, uh, you know chart a different course, uh, whatever, but it's like I always want to tell my students, you know, when when we live in a time where, you know, protests are equated with riots that are uh, equated with looting, that are equated with um, anarchy, that that living in such a, a, a discourse as we are now, uh, it, it's almost, you know, impossible to remember that, hey, you know, we're the people that threw the tea in the water. You know, I mean, I, you know what I'm saying? In other words, there was a moment, it seemed, when, you know, the, the Thomas Paine's idea of, of you know, starting um, tabula rasa, starting, you know, we have a, he, he said, can America be happy, as happy as she pleases? She has a blank sheet to write upon, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, we need that blank sheet, Mr. Paine. Yeah. It's such a powerful thing because I think, you know, we're, we're so much kind of tied to this this idea that um, that we, we should continue to think small, right? That we should continue to think within the systems that exist. And I think it's important to, as I, we probably said on this, this podcast before, to just broaden our historical imaginations, broaden our political imaginations, broaden just the, our imaginations in general to, to think about what that better world would be instead of assuming that we need to be stuck in the world mm-hmm. as it is. Well said. This has been History Against the Grain, episode 24, and we will talk to you in episode 25 this next week or maybe the week after we'll see take care everybody nobody is innocent it's a sin when you play into ignorance another one